Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. So today, um, I want to talk, talk about spiritual principle number two. You and I are God. This week is the second and the last Sunday that we are having conducting new member classes. And so I, I did this because I wanted to coincide with that. I had been wanting to uh, share my lessons I have of the five principles with you since I got here back in January. But I was waiting for the right time. So this seemed to be the right time because now it gives us a chance to have new members and established members and I all really kind of go over the principles together and see, make sure that we're all on the same page. So if you repeat from last week about unity, I mean, spiritual one, principle one, unity has no dogma, no creed, any, nothing that you have to believe in to become a member. Now, it's also not necessary to give up any affiliation with any other religious organization. I told you that when, when I first started coming to unity, I would leave service and go to Catholic mass because I was director of the youth group then. So in unity, we are neither jealous nor possessive. If you want to go, some, that, that's fine too. But we do have an entire book of metaphysics and these five principles. And they guide and formulate our theology, our philosophy. So where did these uh, principles come from? I told you last week that unity co-founder Charles Fillmore, his great-granddaughter, her name was Connie Fillmore Bazzi, was asked to, to summarize the unity teachings Back, I don't know when it was, what year it was, but when she was a president of the Unity School of Christianity in, in Kansas City. And since that time, they have become our cornerstone of, of, our, of how we see things and, and how we see the relationship of God and mankind, in other words. And you'll be hearing these five principles the next couple of weeks over and over as we proceed through them. So let me tell you again what they are. Number one, God is absolute good everywhere present. Number two, human beings are created in the image of God and our very essence is divine. Therefore, we too are inherently good. Third one, we create our life experiences through our thoughts and our beliefs. Four, through affirmative prayer and meditation, we align with God and bring out the good in our lives. And the fifth one, I do and give my best by living the truth I know. I make a difference. And I condensed them for you last week, and I repeat them. God is, I am, I create, I align, I act. So in her book, Reverend Davenport, again, I highly recommend it if you've never read it, to read that, says, as well as offering tools for daily living, the five principles suggest answers to the great questions of existence that humans have been asking since the dawn of conscious awareness. Now, that's my kind of stuff. You all know I'm a philosophy major. So that's, that's right. I just, boom, I'm in, you know. So let's continue with the discussion of the principles today. Last week, as I said, was, was principle one, chapter one. And she summarized it as God is all. Because if God is everywhere, all powerful and non-knowing, as I said last week, the question is not what is God. The question becomes, what isn't God? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> Everything is God. And so thus, 
We are God as well. She writes, with principle one, we broaden our understanding of God to a field of love and intelligence that is the foundation of the universe. I like that. Let me repeat it. A field of love and intelligence that is the foundation of the universe. Not a person, not a being, supreme or otherwise, but a presence, a field of energy. As Meister Eckhart said, beingness. So today's lesson is about principle number two, which is, again, human beings are created in the image of God and our very essence is divine. Therefore, we are inherently good. She subtitles the chapter, You Are God. Now, traditionals, the traditional people would say, might consider that a blasphemous statement. I like blasphemous better than blasphemous. And I can guarantee that there was a time when I would have been burned at the stake, and probably all of us would, for talking this way. Uh, good thing we don't, we, we don't anymore. It's hot enough as it is. I don't, need, <laughs> I don't need to be burned at the stake. I'll pass. Thank you. But, but, but the key here is, is saying that I'm not saying that I alone am God. I'm saying that each and one, every one of us is. As the book and simple logic tells us that if God is everything, then how can we be anything other than divine? It seems simple logic to me. The psalmist, remember last week, I shared with it. The psalmist said, if I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I descend into hell, thou art there. There is no place where you can go or be where God is not. And remember I said, in unity we say, there is no spot where God is not. And so the, the, the idea that we are God, the divine, in expression is the crux of the second principle. Now, a big part of the influence that gave rise to the New Thought movement was transcendentalism. I don't know if you realize that. And it could be very well said that transcendentalism gave us this second principle. And now, to be clear about definitions, this is what transcendentalism is. An idealistic, philosophical, and social movement which developed in New England around 1836 in reaction to rationalism. Influenced by Romanticism, Platonism, and Kantian philosophy. It taught that divinity pervades all nature and all humanity. In plain English, God is all there is and everything is God. Period. The definition continues. Its members held progressive views on feminism and communal living. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau were the central figures Emerson was, of course, a giant in American literature. And he had many, many quotes. But there's two that I really like. One of them is, the thunderous sound of your actions do not allow me to hear what you are saying. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. In other words, actions speak louder than words. And this one, which I equate with principle two. The highest revelation is that God is in every man. And by man, you know, that's 1800s talk. Person, but in every person. Now, keep in mind also, Emerson lived in New England, and the puritanical influence was very, very much still around. So to make such a statement was extremely radical, and he was very radical. 
I know he was invited to, to Harvard School of Divinity graduation class to speak. And I think they regretted that <laughs> because he was very out there. And they said, oh, that's not what we wanted to hear, Ralph. You know? but, uh, he was not invited back. No, he was not. You're right. <laughs> Never was. Thank you, Ralph, and that'll do. <laughs> You're done. But no one in America believed this. No one. In, in the whole Western civilization, nobody believed that we were divine. Everybody believed that Jesus is the only son of God and that he alone is divine. Nobody else. But the transcendentalists say, no, that is not true. Not only are we all divine, everything is divine, including the natural world and everything in it. Now, for most people, this was not a comforting thought. This was an unsettling thought. Because, you know, we get into comfort zones, and, and we like to think that we know what's going on, and somebody comes along and tells us, that's not what's going on at all. And that's not real comforting for most. The paragraph in the chapter says, most people still want to believe in God, in a God that knows and cares about the details of their lives, that can make a difference in what humans or at least in how we feel about what happens. Even with a concept of God as the ground of being, as impervious to our dramas as the air we breathe, that personal relationship with the divine has not been lost. He says, she says, it merely has been relocated as you. This is a huge difference between how traditional Christianity sees a personal God and how we see a personal God. And in fact, we're criticized because some people say, well, they don't have a personal God. God is not personal to them. Because they only hear the part about us talking about the transcendental God, the impersonal God. They don't hear us talk about the imminent God, the God within. And for, tra for tradition, a, a, a personal God is a God out there who intervenes capriciously in our lives. And unity, that is not the kind of personal God we have. We have a much more personal God, I believe, because we are that God in expression. That is very interesting. Now, I don't mean that, it's, that our gods are different because that's, that wouldn't be correct, of course. And it's not about that. And it's not about what's right or wrong. And we've been talking about that for the last several uh, weeks and stuff. It's about stages of development and how we see things. So everybody is where they are, and that's all good. But, but the idea of, of an impersonal God and a personal God is found in Scripture. Let me share one. Mark 5.45, we read, For he makes the sunshine rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and the unjust. That is a divine operating as principle. And just to be clear about what that means, Reverend Ellen tells us at the beginning of the book, a principle is a rule or a law that never changes. It applies to all people everywhere all the time. We learn this as children. Two plus two equals four. Anytime, anywhere. It's a math mathematical principle. If you get an answer other than four, the mistake is yours, not the principles. And I would add to that. She doesn't say that. I would add to that. And the correction of that is yours as well. Your answer, the, your answer never depends 
on whether you're a good person or a bad person. The principle is not even aware of you. It just is. I love the analogy of water. And I've been talking to, to Kathy about water. Water is the great gift. Now, think about this. Because it, it occurred to me one time. I said, hmm. Water is the great giver of life on this planet. Without it, nothing can survive. It gives. And what does it give? It gives simply because it, it is its nature to give. And it gives unconditionally to everything and wants and needs nothing in return. Just think about that. When you have that kind of an understanding of God, then you have a better understanding of that principle, transcendent God. But what about the flip side? What about the personal God in us and as us? There's a verse for that as well. Now, as I said before, in unity, or I especially, talk a lot about things from a conceptual point of view, from the big picture point of view. And that's the whole central idea of what we call a metaphysical, which I prefer to call an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. And this is found, this verse is found both in Hebrew and the Christian scripture. scripture and it affirms our idealistic views. The difference is they are not interpreted that way in tradition. And again, that, the difference would be the consciousness. And you know, Jesus told the disciples, I have much more to tell you, but you're not ready. And so it's, it's just about that. You know what they say? When, when the student is ready, the teacher will show up. That's just the Eastern talk, you know. And so here's, here's the verse. It is written again in Isaiah and in Matthew. It said, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God within us. Well, there it is, God within us. Except we would say God as us. Very personal. Now, traditionally speaking, that their view was that God was not in the world. You know, ever since the fall, then the planet was godless, let's just say. And it took millions and millions of years of development, of the earth development, for God to enter into the world. And he did so through, and when, it, when God did so, it did so in the form of one person. I don't know if you thought about it that way, but that doesn't make any, does that make any sense to you? Why would, well, so the, conceptually speaking, yes, God is with us, Emmanuel, but with all of us, because God is everywhere. It's very simple. So anyway, as we learned last month, it's not about wrong. It, it just isn't. The book says the goal of spiritual growth becomes to know ourselves as spirit. And to begin to express it ourselves in that manner. Now, this is the great, the grand paradox. The one thing in infinite variation. One presence in infinite variation. The no thing that is everything. Or as Aristotle put it, the unmoved mover. People in unity have come to understand us ourselves as spirit so now that you know this your duty is to express that in your daily lives and to everybody that you come across and what is the spirit it is a field of pure infinite potential that underlies all of creation all of it 
I want to read you something from the Bhagavad Gita. By me is this entire universe pervaded. All things are in me and I in them. Know that as the mighty wind blowing everywhere rests in the sky, all created beings rest in me. I am the father, the mother, the supporter, and the grandsire of the universe. At the end of each chapter, there is a very, very short meditation. And this one, I'd like to share it with you. Go ahead. I invite you to close your eyes and just take in every word of this small little paragraph. As I turn within, I retreat from outer awareness and enter my soul, the divine in me. It is here that I know my connection to spirit. Deep within, I find the peace that passes understanding. Deep within, I find the knowledge of all things and the awareness of absolute good. Deep within, I touch the gifts that are God. It is here that I receive wisdom and guidance, that I know truth and understanding, that I am strengthened and comforted. This is the divine essence that I am. The core of me is God. And from the God within me, I can do anything. Have a blessed week.